Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Computer Vision Introduction Podcast Show, a podcast show where we talk all about everything computer vision, from the individual components of the technology, including vision, cameras, and deep learning, right through to hearing about some of the most interesting applications that companies are using at the moment. everyone and welcome to the computer vision in production podcast i'm your host anthony kelly today's guest is nicholas alt who is a co-founder at visa v robotics nicholas welcome to the show hi nice having me great uh, great to have you here so so suppose nicholas if we just want to start off with a little bit of an introduction from yourself your background what kind of led you going into down the field of AI? And then what got you into more specifically robotics? Yeah, right. So basically, I started working on robotics and robot vision during my PhD at, at TUM at the Technical University of Munich. And my focus became robotic perceptions, robotic perception, basically combining vision and haptics for for robotics. And um, during this work, I, among other things, created the camera-based sensors, which is basically um, the founding idea of Visevi. Yeah, I came to robotics uh, to the research in my PhD, and so here we are. Nice, nice. So you initially studied in your PhD electrical computing, and then wrote your thesis on autonomous robotic systems. And then you stayed on to do like a, I suppose what looks to be like an entrepreneur, re, an entrepreneur in residence slash researcher role at TUM, where you've done a lot of research on what you mentioned, you know, robot vision. And then you founded Visa V Robotics from it. I suppose, can you tell us a little bit about that journey from, you know, coming in from an idea from pretty much very early ideation research on what's it's it's not a brand new topic but it's it will be very new to a lot of people but how you decided to say look i've got an application here i think i can build a build a product out of this and, and what that journey looked like yeah right i guess for a few years now universities in europe support this idea this concept of um doing the research at the university and then creating a spin-off that aims to market this technology. And this has been installed and uh, this has been supported by politics. So there are a few programs that will support you with that journey. And yeah, we actually got into one of those programs um, that would help us to create a spin-off, to create a startup out of uh, out of TUM. You called it entrepreneur in residence. Um, I guess that's a... I, we have never used this term, but I guess that, that describes it quite well. You are employed, uh, you are formally employed by the university, but you are pretty much free to do what helps you to create your, your startup. It's, it's still a, a complex role. You, you still have duties at the university. You are legally still an employee there. So all your work in the beginning belongs to the university. but there are solutions to all these problems. And as of now, we, we created an independent company. We are no longer legally connected to TUM right now. Okay. And 
I suppose you've come from research heavy. Now you haven't, I suppose it's a different experience when you go from research heavy into the founder of a company that's actually looking to productionize and sell products. What did you find was was the big difference or the main differences between research orientated looking to build a product and then, you know, overnight being like, okay, we're a product company now. We've got to we've got to operate differently. What was what was the biggest changes for you? Well, where should I start? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, you can start with the nightmares. Well, so first of all, financing, of course, becomes quite different from one day to the next. You're going out of the employee role, role with your regular salary into a role where you have to get money into the company first before you can pay salaries to yourself and your co-founders. Legally, it's, it's I think it's always a difference if you work for a small organization versus a very large organization. In a small organization, in a startup, you just do everything yourself. While in the university, you have many departments that can support you with uh, things like accounting and and some other activities. So this in organization was quite obvious. Then also, I would say you feel a last large change in in your speed at the university. You also because of your colleagues, you. You're not really forced so much to go to the customer, go to the market, even though we try to do that. But in the company, suddenly that's your main goal, right? You you want to bring the technology out to, to to the to the market. You want to find partners, commercial partners who become your customers, and so on. And finally, what I want to say is that you're perceived, of course, quite differently by customers, potential customers and partners as soon as you have created this company. You see that you are a company in Germany based on this GmbH, and that tells people in the market, that tells people out there that you that you really have a different goal now than as a researcher. So then, Nicholas, you know, you've, you've kind of had to adapt from, I suppose, not only as a company perspective as well, but as a personal level, you had to change the role you were doing from from this sort of entrepreneurial research role to being a CEO, what were your biggest learning points? And then how has that changed your role? Well, I, I should say like it was it was a gradual change for me. Um, even before we established the company, I had to learn some of the aspects uh, that, uh, that the role of a CEO, a CEO brings with it. Brings uh, it's itself. I mean, at the university, I, I've I've been the project leader of the then Roby project, um, and you also have to organize uh, a lot. You have to plan your own events, your own activities. You have to schedule meetings with potential partners who would later be your customers. So it's not like I had to learn all this from one day to the next. That made it a bit easier, I, I would say. But still, um, there, there comes this day, there comes this point where your personal perspective changes, right? You're, you're now responsible for the company and are no longer backed by, by this larger organization, the university. Yeah, so I suppose before we talk about the physical products at uh, Vis-a-Vis, um, you, know, you sent me over an interesting article about computer vision and how it's driving the robotic revolution. 
Uh, do you want to give us some overview about this article and, and how it is actually relevant to, to Rovi and then how it also led to the development of Visa? Yeah, sure. So if you think about service robotics or service robots, those are usually quite intelligent robots who only act, who only do something after they understand their environment, after they understand what's around them. And this understanding of what's around them is basically done by visual perception. Pretty much like a human being, first of all, walks into the room and orients its, its, itself um, using his eyes. A service robot would have to do the same using its cameras together with computer vision algorithms. And this is actually the same you also see in self-driving cars. They have to orient themselves on the road in their current situation using mainly the visual sense, using mainly cameras. And this paradigm kind of is very important for us as a company. We say service robots really need to understand first what's around them, where the obstacles are, where the objects are, before they do anything. And that's why we call them camera-driven robots. The camera is really at the beginning of every action, every planning, every thinking, if you want, that a robot like that has to do. And then we, and then we, we, uh, we actually went with this idea. Even I would say one step further, we say why why is the camera not the only the essential sensor of the robot? So you have these different modalities of, of perception of sensors, and we created a technology to basically um, use the the, the 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 sensor to basically use the visual modality the camera to replace other modalities, uh, specifically touch and, uh, and, and, and the sense of physical presence. And that's where, the, where our idea of camera-based sensors comes into. Okay, excellent. And then, so if we talk about the products then that you've actually used to build out of this in a, with, a, I suppose, a combination of technologies, you have three products, there's the voice tact, the voice script, and the voice ping. Do you want to tell us a little bit about each product, how they vary, and then the, I suppose, the specific use cases of where they could be used to, to help the business or, I suppose, where they're going to be used in industry? So I would say our main product right now is Vicegrip. The other, the other solutions are rather prototypes. So let's have a look at Vicegrip first. Vicegrip is an intelligent and integrated gripping system with cameras, a gripper, and tactile sensing. That means it's a solution that you can plug and play to your robot. You connect power and the USB cable, and you have access to all the sensors, which is the cameras, the motor control. So this product has a hardware side, which you can see uh, on the website, and also a software side. The software side connects using ROS to uh, to this to the scripper and allows us to well to use the cameras for object detection and tasks like that and trust planning as well as for tactile sensing. Let me elaborate a bit more on the on the latter aspect. The vice gripper also in integrates tactile sensing using cameras, so it integrates camera-based tactile sensing. That means it has the cameras that look onto the fingers. And on the fingers, we mounted some rubber foam material, material that deforms as soon as the gripper touches anything. 
the cameras are used for a computer vision algorithm that detects this deformation of the rubber foam and calculates a tactile profile out of what they see. So basically, we can see what the gripper is grasping right now, giving, giving it a sense of sensitivity even for um, delicate object handling. Yeah, and I, I think one thing as well is, I suppose I actually do want to go into it and talk even more about the difference between a camera, like a standard camera that would be going into maybe like an autonomous driving vehicle versus, you know, the camera-based tactile sensing, robotic sensors that are actually on these cameras rather than being within the hardware models. Yeah. Basically, uh, if you mount these sensors that give you that measure force or tactile data or position on the robot, you would have to install an, an electronic model into the robot or into the gripper. That sounds simple at first, but you have to think all these sensors have to go into a, into a robotic arm or a robotic gripper with very limited space. You just think about a tactile sensor, the tactile sensor would go into the fingers of a robot. You can easily imagine that there's not much space in the fingers to install any electronic device that even needs cabling. So this is exactly what we replace using camera-based sensors. We, we do not need electronics anymore or any active component in the fingers of the robot. We just look at the fingers and see what they feel there. Uh, that's, I guess, the main difference. We I, do guess, I guess cost really comes into it then as well. You know, if you don't have to put these pieces into every individual moving part of the of the robot, it's actually able to save you money. And I suppose not even save you money, but I mean if your product costs too much to build one arm or one robotic arm, it will never have a customer and the return on the return on investment will be so hard to prove. You know, you'd really want to be doing something special. Right. And I mean, so far we've only talked about device tact, the, the tactile sensor in the in the fingers, but it's about more sensors, right? We together with the vice force and vice joint, we can replace basically all the sensors you would need on a robotic arm and a gripper to do sensitive handling, and like like that, using those three sensors, you get all the sensor data you need from a camera. And that allows you to build, for instance, very lightweight uh, arms that you could build on a drone or also very low-cost arms that you could build on a, on a home vacuum planer. And these arms would be able to manipulate objects with sensitivity, with the sense of the environment, just like other existing robotic arms. That's really the vision we are going for, combining these three sensor types to build complete camera-controlled robotic arms and gripping. Okay, nice. So when you have the, the camera-based sensing technologies, we'll touch into the hardware and the embedded software just in a bit. But, you know, how? what's the process of integrating, you know, everything together? How do you, how do you get these robotic sensors, camera sensors, onto the arm with the hardware and the embedded software as a completed piece? That's the easiest, and that would be the, actually the tactile sensor, which we integrated as well in this Vicegrip product. So for this sensor, you just need to put sensitive fingers on your robot. You would screw them onto your gripper just like any other finger, 
and then you you mount a camera that looks on the fingers and that's basically it um you've got the remote sensing set up like that using the camera you connect the camera to a computer that runs our algorithm and calculate the tactile data that are basically seen remotely through the camera now um I said this is the easiest setup, and that's why we also sell it in this Vice product. The other solutions are a bit more complicated. Vice uh, Force, for instance, is a sensor that you would need to integrate into the chain of the arm, usually between the arm and the and the gripper. So you kind of have to change the structure of your robot a bit. And finally, the Vice Joint sensor is something that entirely changes the design of the robotic arm. Basically, wise joint is a solution that don't really see because you you remove or you replace the encoders that you normally put into your robot arm with this virtual wise joint sensor. It basically means that you again point a camera onto your robot arm. The camera needs to extract features on the robotic arm, such as the wrist or the elbow of the robot, and then uh, with the computer vision software calculates the joint positions of the arm based on this camera image. So if you build a robot arm like that, it's, you, would, you, you would see that it's greatly simplified, that it just uses motors and, make, and, and, and gears and doesn't need any sensors anymore. So the, you really need to change the plan of, your, of the mechanics of your robot arm if you want. We've actually shown this in a prototype that we have demonstrated on various fairs. And we used, we used a robotic, a modular robotic system where you can actually choose what gears and what motors and what sensors you want to install in your robot arm. Okay, nice, nice. And then with the camera-based sensing technology, which is, you know, predicting where, where the arm is and where the joints are, how do you integrate computer vision technology with camera-based sensing technology? So I would say camera-based sensing technology is actually computer vision plus some special simple mechanic parts on the robot arm. So for instance, for the tactile sensor, you need this elastic material, this bar of rubber foam that you put onto the finger of your, of your robot. And this is the object that you're searching for using your computer vision algorithm. And it's similar for the other two sensors. You always have some physical thing that you will need to put on your robot arm, very simple mechanic structure that you then search for with your algorithm. And so now if we compare how computer vision is used with camera-based sensing technologies, how does that compare to more traditional uh, models that are used in the robotics industry? I would say the algorithms we use are quite similar. And that's because in robotics, if you use vision, you usually have some pretty tough real-time requirements, especially if you want to put the vision system into the control loop. And that requires you to, to use maybe some more proven, some older algorithms that can be accelerated very fast with the current computers. So from from that point of view, it's um, it's it's, it's uh, proven algorithms, it's proven computer vision algorithms we use for camera-based sensing, 
but it's not so different what what you use in other areas of robotics. What is different is what we actually become. We are looking at what arm at the robot gripper itself. The typical computer vision algorithms. We usually look at the environment or or at the object around the robot, and not at the robot arm itself. Okay, excellent. And then you mentioned to me before, which I, I was quite amazed by, is that these robotic arms don't always need to run on an edge device. How does that work, and when and when would an edge device be necessary to to have a successful robotic arm? I would say this camera-based sensing usually runs uh, on on a computer that is really directly on the robot. This is this is due to the real-time requirements, uh, due to the low latency you need to have between your sensor and your control system. Now, um, if you want to split up this control structure using edge devices or even cloud devices, that's that's things you can you can think of, but it's not a typical technical setup you would you would do. We rather say um, once we go away from the robot into the cloud, we um, we would only we would only look at statistics and more generalized data as opposed to these low level sensor data that run on the on the robot itself. And you could think of handing graph statistics, graph analysis on a cloud device um, off, off, off side of the robot. And then, so before we sort of talk about challenges that, that you faced, let's talk about what could happen in, in the future and how these breakthrough technologies and robotics and, and camera-based sensors are going to shape your, your industry. How do you think it's going to have an impact on, on the robotics industry, you know, breakthroughs and camera technology and camera-based sensors? So let me answer this question a bit in a more general way. Camera-based sensors are one uh, special aspect of using cameras on the robot, but uh, camera-driven robots are really the are really going to be the big thing in my view. Whatever robot you can think of that is not running in a, in a structured industrial environment would benefit a lot from, from, having, from having a camera and a powerful computer vision, right? So at any time, the robot needs to understand what's around it. It needs to use its camera and its computer vision. The more you understand the environment, the more you can do things that really are helpful with a robot. Uh, it starts from driving around in buildings using elevators, navigating through doors and hallways. And then, and this is something we are actually seeing in the market already using uh, autonomous uh, mobile platforms. But then if you, if you think beyond, if you think about manipulation, that's really where, it's, where, where the robots learn to interact with their environment, like picking up objects, storing them away, opening doors, all these things that you would need a robotic arm for. That's where you can do really powerful tasks using cameras that haven't been possible before. And I, th I see this really as an enabler of using robotics in all kinds of industries, in all kinds of industries outside of 
typical industrial robotics use cases we, we have seen for decades now. And um, now with the industry and, and the hopes for, for a bright future, there's always some, some challenges. So I suppose in terms of robotic sensors and camera technologies, what has been the biggest challenge you face with these when looking to, to implement them into your product? You mean challenges for the technology? Challenges for the technology, yes, and how, how you've overcome these, or even challenges that you're even still currently, currently facing. Uh, so one big challenge with uh, computer vision on robots is always, and has always been for, and has also been for us, the stability. Computer vision has a tendency of working well, except in some cases. And uh, that means you, you, get, you get the expected results most of the time. But in robotics, if, if your computer vision algorithm fails, you, you really have a problem. While in other applications, what does it mean? It means maybe that that face is not detected correctly on your camera image. So what? But in robotics, if if some important information is missed in the is is, is missed in the image, the robot would I don't know drive to a wall or or break itself and things like that. So in computer computer vision on robotics, you always need to make sure that the data you get is as accurate as possible. Even if you, if even if it means that you maybe process fewer data or extract fewer information from the image, that's one big challenge. And another big challenge is integration for these complex systems, like plugging it all together, having having reliable software interfaces to your hardware, and making sure your hardware models really run the way they should, connecting all these complex software models especially as soon as the application becomes more complex. I guess that's also a challenge many service robotics companies face, and uh, it has to be solved by really checking your programming all the time. Um, it has to be solved by... Maybe yeah, it's, it's, it's not quite as simple as having a couple of distributed uh, patches of software. You know, you can't separate it as as well. So you you basically you have to do a lot of testing and find all the border cases and put the robot out into the field and see how it really behaves. And then, yeah, step by step, learn what the bugs are, find out where the weaknesses of your code um, or also of your interfaces lie and and fix those. It's a lot of work. Would you would you run run many uh, simulations or use mainly do field testing? You have to do both. Um, simulations will get you very far concerning maybe general algorithm algorithmic concepts, but then you have to test your real system in the field to really make it reliable and stable. Maybe maybe we will get simulations one day that that can. That maybe put the hardware in the loop or use other techniques to make the simulation more realistic. But uh, looking at the tools we have available right now, I think there's no way around field testing. And you, you also mentioned users are a big challenge, mainly due to the application being so novel. How do you plan on overcoming that? I mean, you know, 
we, we live in a day, we live in a world where we have self-scanning, you know, self-scanning checkouts at uh, the supermarkets. Now, with a, with a voice script, we could also have self, self-scanning, but then also a, a robotic arm that could take stuff from our basket, scan it and directly put it into a bag for us. Do you think it's it's just fear or do you think it's almost too futuristic that people are like, oh, it, they're a little bit more reserved with the technology? Yeah, so the, the, the technology we are offering, the products we're offering are certainly futuristic or at least innovative in many ways. You cannot expect from customers to just accept that as if, as if, as if it was a technology that's been proven for, for decades. And I, I see, I think you'll see the same problems in autonomous cars where, where especially lawmakers and insurances are very reluctant. You just need to accept that it takes time until these novel uh, technologies, if, it, if it's AI or computer vision, are really accepted by the broad market. How do we solve it? Well, I mean, we go for the innovators right now. We, we want to find people who want to try out something new who are not afraid of not knowing what the outcome will be who well who also have a budget for for trying out these new things even though they might not have a even though you may you might not be able to calculate their internal of investment yet yeah now i know it might sound a bit uh, silly but do you think like movies like terminator and iRobot, which have all said robots are the apocalypse. Do you think that plays on people's minds? I know it sounds outrageous, but I think I personally think it does. It definitely plays on people's mind, but the question is, does it play on does it help the current technology? There are some people that would think in robotics that films like iRobot also set the expectations of what robots can do way too high. <laughs> yeah so if someone doesn't have a robot cooking them dinner and cleaning their house they're not going to trust one that's going to do something for less right yes if people have these movies in their minds and then they see what real robots can do they they, they tend to get some of them tend to get bored almost by by what is really possible nowadays and they lose interest for it in, in some way on the other hand, some of these movies also created a lot of fears who are actually present in our society. Like, will robots take over our jobs? Can we really control what robots think and do if they use AI? All these, all these fears come out of, out of movies in the end. And technology certainly isn't there yet. So I guess we, we have these fears a bit early. Yeah, I know that. I've also seen some interesting uh, trend reports that the countries with the highest levels of automation, and when I say automation, I mean robots, computers, helping people do day-to-day tasks, self-checkouts or even even more advanced stuff than that. The highest levels of automation actually have the lowest levels of unemployment. And I think they looked at, you know, like Germany, Ireland, UK and France, who all had like, you know, upwards of between 20 and 30% of automation in, in day-to-day life and unemployment. Now, the report was last year. I, I imagine COVID is going to have some effect on this. 
And then it was like unemployment was generally below 10%. And then when it went to other areas of the world, like, you know, like Mexico, Spain, they had less automation and they had higher unemployment. Now, I do, you've also got to take market conditions into that and, and where these companies are globally, or these countries are globally. But I mean, the, the numbers are there. The computers are not actually taking people's jobs. Um, they're, they're creating opportunities in other places. But the media won't let you uh, won't let you believe that. The media will will scaremonger people into thinking that their job's gone and a computer can replace you so easy. Yeah, and I think I mean these are good news, and I think for the foreseeable future, this, these principles will still apply. Um, because if you look at automation right now, it's it's really happening in industry. In the car makers use it use it a lot. But we see the problems of worker shortage they might have had now also in different industries, like also in agriculture or also in in the service industry. And these are the industries that are going to be automated by service robots. And you already see that they that that, that the service robots are, are going to be used there, where we have the biggest uh, worker shortage. So it's it's not like we are taking jobs away from people. I, I, I would say this applies to the foreseeable future. Maybe maybe things will change one day, but uh, so far I think these old trends that that you have mentioned in uh, in these studies uh, still apply. Yeah. No, I think uh, I think it is, and it's it's interesting to see where it can it can come in. You know, one thing I've always said is I hate going to a supermarket I've never been in before, and there's no store assistants on the on the floor. They're always at the tills. If you could automate the tills, you could maybe have people to to assist you when you're actually shopping. In a lot of cases, I just leave without finding the right item just because just because I can't and I get frustrated. And this application you're actually talking about you're talking about right now is actually already working with service robots. I mean, there have been prototypes of robots that wait in the at the entrance of the store for you and guide you to where you want to go. So cool. the question is really why are we not why have we why are we not seeing these robots more regularly? Maybe they are still too expensive. Maybe the return of invest is not clear yet. I don't know. No, that's that's fair. But uh Nicholas, I think that's that's us running up for time. So for everyone listening, you're listening to the Computer Vision and Production Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Kelly. Today's guest was Nicholas Alt, who is the co-founder of Visa V Robotics. Nicholas, it was great to have you on the show. Thanks for being a guest. Thank you, Alfred, and I wish you all the best for your show. Thank you. listening to this episode of the computer vision in production podcast with your host anthony kelly to make sure you get updates on the latest episodes of the show make sure you subscribe on your preferred podcast listening app or add me on linkedin